Welcome to the College Knowledge Podcast, sponsored by the College Planning Network and Paradigm Financial Group. Whether you're searching for that right fit college, applying to college, or figuring out how you're going to afford it all, you're in the right place. You'll hear from deans, admissions counselors, student athletes, and scholars from esteemed universities and colleges around the country. We'll dig deep to uncover their insight and unique experiences. So whether you're a student gearing up for college or a parent with college-bound kids, sit back, relax, and listen. Like you, we have lots of questions. Our guests have the answers, and we're excited to share them with you. Let's get started. Thank you guys for being a part of College Knowledge. Just a reminder, if you're sending your student to school, visit EliteCollegiatePlanning.com for free resources and to book a free consultation. Hey everybody, welcome back to College Knowledge. I'm your host, Dave Kozak, alongside my co-host, Mr. Joe Kearns. Dave, I got a, a nice did you know today. Maybe not nice, but did you know that over the past two years, at what would some be considered elite institutions, the acceptance rate has been cut in half. So schools that had a 20% acceptance rate is now down to 10. Schools that had a 6% acceptance rate is now down to 3 I, d- I did not. And do you have any insight as to why? Well, it's not like the schools not accepting as many students, but it's simply that the, and we've kind of talked about this before, that a lot of kids are only applying or really applying to these reach schools. So they are getting more applications, Got which it. means, well, there's a lot more rejection letters that are going out because of that. Well, there you go. Did you know? Now you do. All right. So today on the show, we have a, a, a very distinguished guest, and we are very proud to present uh, Dr. Gloria Donnelly, the Dean Emerita, Professor Emerita, and founding dean of the College of Nursing and Health Professions at Drexel University. Uh, Dr. Donnelly, thank you, and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you, just in our little pre-conversation, mm-hmm. you have stories and all kinds to share with us, advice to give families and experiences. And you're an author of seven books, one I have right here. Um, Tell us a little bit about your pathway into uh, higher ed and how you, I mean, you've held positions at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, Trenton State. uh, Villanova. Villanova. uh, Obviously, Drexel, LaSalle. uh, I mean, You've, you've MCP Hahnemann, which went bankrupt. Well, we, and that wasn't your fault, right? No. no. So, but you've you've been all over, and you have so much insight and experience. And not only that, but you also are the founding dean of the College of Nursing and and well, how do they put it, health professions. Mm-hmm. And so, not only were you are you highly educated, but you're you're dis- distinguished in your practice, and you've set up schools. Mm-hmm. So, yes. you know, our listening audience is all parents and students that are college bound uh, professionals around the world that are trying to understand the education system in higher ed. So give us a little story about how you, your okay. experience and, and how you got to being the founding Dean of Drexel. Okay. I uh, wanted desperately to go to college to be a nurse. Now that was a long time ago and there were not very many collegiate programs of nursing. But one Sunday, I was reading the Inquirer, and there was a picture of these nursing students in their uh, uniforms mm-hmm. uh, graduating from Villanova University. Mm-hmm. And I started looking into it, and I went to see the guidance counselor at my high school, which was in South Philly. Okay. 
And she said, well, you know, you could try, but it's highly selective. But I did. I applied. My parents weren't thrilled because my father was a bus driver mm -hmm. and he wanted me to go to school around the corner. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother said I wouldn't make a good nurse because <laughs> I never made my bed right. <laughs> <laughs> but I was determined to go to Villanova and I was accepted. There were 56 of us in, the, in that class. I think we were the second class. Okay of the four-year program, the first one to go through all four years. And it and I commuted. Mm. It took me two hours every morning to get there and two hours to get home. Uh, and I loved every minute of it. Uh, I, I certainly liked working with people. And I think if, you know, if you don't like working with people, if you're a very extreme introvert, then it's not a, a profession that you would gravitate toward. Mm -hmm. But I did. But my uh, I awakening, my clinical awakening, and of course, what, you know, when your parents and, and young people are looking for programs, whether it's nursing or physician assistant or physical therapy or any clinical program, you really have to take a look at and ask a lot of questions about where the school provides the clinical experience. Mm -hmm. Because in any nursing or health profession, it's the clinical experience where you learn the most. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's, that's crucial. So my clinical experience that was my awakening was at the United States Naval Hospital during mm -hmm. the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we had 400 inpatients. They were flying these young men in from all over the Atlantic theater. And uh, they were breaking down left and right because war was imminent. Mm -hmm. And we had uh, three locked wards, three open wards. I was assigned to a locked ward. And I worked with very, very sick patients. But I had my own psychiatrist. I was assigned to a psychiatrist. I followed him around. I attended his group sessions. Uh, it, it was an amazing clinical experience. And I had this wonderful instructor that really encouraged me to pursue it. She mm. saw that I had a knack for mm. it. And there used to be a rubric in nursing school. They would say, you have to work one year in medical surgical nursing when you get out of school, because that's kind of like mastering the basics. So I remember saying to my instructor, do I have to do that? <laughs> <laughs> and she whispered in my ear, follow your heart. Huh. And I did. Mm-hmm. And I got a position at Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. Mm. And I was one of maybe three nurses in the whole institution that had a baccalaureate degree. So the director of nursing, the chief nursing officer, took a liking to me, and she began guiding me. Mm. And I guess I was there six months. She called me in, and she said, I want you to go to the University of Pennsylvania on Friday. And take a test to get enroll in the master's program. Mm. They have they're giving fellowships. So I said, "Well, what about my job?" She said, "I will arrange your hours 
so that you can do both. Mm-hmm. So I went on Friday. I always did everything she said. And I took the test and they called 25 names. I was one of them and I got the fellowship. How about it? So I went through, I got my master's. I had it in maybe 15 months. And then uh, Miss Holmes, her name was, she hired me. She promoted me to staff development. And I began designing all of the education programs for attendance, for sort of nurse assistance. And I just love that position. And then uh, I moved on. Uh, I went to, um, uh, I worked at Villanova. I was on the faculty there for a while. Uh, I uh, had a friend who I met in graduate school, and he became the chief nursing officer of uh, St. Agnes Hospital in South Philly. And he called me one night, said, Gloria, you have to help me out. My uh, director of the school uh, is leaving, uh, was a sister, a nun. And he said, I need somebody and and I can't find a master's prepared nurse. Mm. So I went to help him and then I ended up taking that position. And that was my first educational position. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for parents out there and young people, looking for, let's say, nursing programs, uh, there used to be, now there still are a few hospital schools of nursing in Pennsylvania, uh, but there were hospital schools of nursing and four-year mm-hmm. nursing programs. A little later on, and actually around 1960, the community college programs began. And the community college programs in nursing were really an effort by the profession to bring nursing education into the mainstream of higher education Mm -hmm. and not have it controlled Mm -hmm. by the hospital. So I was working in this hospital school, and of course, the physicians were always trying to push us around and order us around, and I ended up on a picket line outside the hospital, I was fired. Mm. So you have to be fired once in your career. (laughs) That's kind of a rubric for me. So that was mine. Check. Mm. Uh, And I learned so much, you know, you learn a lot in adversity. You do. And so when you have adversity, you have to step back. You have to look at what you did. And there was a Christian brother that I had uh, befriended in the hospital. He used to visit the chaplain and he was a dean at LaSalle University. <clears throat> and he called me. I was sitting home now two weeks out after this being fired. And he said, hi, how, how you doing, Gloria? And I said, well, I said, I'm sitting here thinking about what I'm going to do with the rest of my career. Mm. He said, let me ask you this. If you had to do it over again, would you still have protested? Would you still have gone out on the picket line? And I said, well, I have to say yes to that. And he said, right answer. I have a job for you. And that's how I landed at LaSalle. How about that? And I loved LaSalle. Uh, it of all the places I worked, it 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 was the place where 
the mission and the values were really lived. And uh, I helped them design nursing programs. Uh, I stayed 17 years and I absolutely love their philosophy. Uh, the Christian brothers really emphasized student support, teaching. Uh, for example, you know, when, when you come up for promotion at a university, usually they look at your publications and, you, you know, did you bring in research funding and all of that? At LaSalle, and I sat on committees, they looked at teaching. Mm. They looked at your student evaluations. They looked at your reputation as a teacher because teaching was paramount in their mission. Mm -hmm. It was paramount for their founder and it was paramount in the mission. And there was great support for the teaching function. So I left LaSalle, you know, I got restless and my, uh, some of my friends that I went there to work with were gone. And I moved on to MCP Hahnemann. Uh, it was a great opportunity. They had a new CEO who, of course, eventually ended up in prison. <laughs> and, uh, and I assume he's the one that was responsible for the failure of the hospital. Actually, he was. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he hired me, though. Hey, well, you got to give him credit where credit's due, right? <laughs> so uh, my role was to lead a school of nursing that really had kind of been buried in mm -hmm. a department. So to make it into a school and to grow the programs, which is what I like to do. I like to grow things. So I'm a gardener, mm -hmm. but yep. I also like to grow things in my work. Yeah. And... Uh, we were moving along. I, we had a plan. Uh, they gave me uh, resources to hire new faculty and everything was going well. And all of a sudden they couldn't meet payroll. Mm. And then all of the, mm. you know, the sturm and drang started and uh, we went into chapter 11. Mm. Now that's a terrible thing to live through, but I have to say, I learned more about university and college and program finances than I could have ever learned mm -hmm. without having lived through a bankruptcy. And I learned where our margin went and it didn't go come back to the school. Mm -hmm. It went to a different school. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I became very sophisticated about the financial management of programs. We event, uh, uh, President Papadakis uh, was the president of Drexel at the time, and I think it was the governor that appealed to him to work with MCP Hahnemann and Tenet Healthcare, who had bought the hospital okay, and all the hospitals that uh, Hahnemann owned. And uh, we merged into Drexel in 2000. Okay. So... Now I'm at Drexel and very different environment. And, you know, I would advise uh, parents and students who are looking for college, colleges and programs to really pay attention to the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, what does it feel like? Are you a good fit? You know, is it a very competitive place or is it a cooperative place? Is it more of a community? Because fit is so important. If fit isn't 
good. If, if the young person is not a good fit with the culture, their stress levels will mm -hmm. be way up. And so I always encourage parents to walk around, get a feel for the place, talk to people, uh, really look at, look at the way the website is organized. Is it friendly? Mm -hmm. uh, and for, for many students, that's important. For some, not so much, but you have to really kind of fit. Uh, Drexel was a highly competitive environment, a great school. Um, I had, um, uh, of course, we were the mergee. And, uh, you know, if you work in business, you know the mergee mm -hmm. is always at some risk. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, But I always say, because of my early background working in psychiatric hospitals on locked wards, I did well in university administration. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> So I was able to manage. That's the, fantastic. Yes, mm -hmm. the university administration and all of the, you know, the challenges. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, some of the faculty would say, not the faculty that I brought in, but the, you know, the, we should have never done this, and it was all public. You know, newspaper columns or letters to the yeah, editor. The, the drama. The drama. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be merging these folks into us. They're going to take our resources. That mm -hmm. kind of thing. Well, uh, I didn't. You know, I listened to it, but we kept our heads down. Uh, I, the president of Drexel. I had like a, some sort of bond with him and he supported mm. our school. And he would say to me, you can grow it. You can grow it. Uh, and, uh, and I did. And so they merged nursing and health professions together. Okay. The, and that really was a financial decision. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't need two deans, two deans offices, all of that. Uh, but I was very careful with the health professions, and I asked the faculty of each department, do you want to be here or someplace else in the university? For instance, we had a psychology department at MCP Hahnemann. Well, they had one at Drexel, and the psychologists in my school said, we would like to be with Drexel psychologists. Mm -hmm. So I facilitated the move. Mm. Uh, the medical school wanted the physician assistant program back. And I went to the physician assistants and said, where do you want to be? And they said, we want to be here mm -hmm. with you and nursing and health profession. So I said to the medical school, sorry, they don't want to be with you. So it was that kind of thing. We had about a thousand students all together in nursing and health professions when I started. By what year was that? That's 2002? That was 2000. Okay, 2001. Okay. When I left, when I retired in 2017, we had 5,000. Wow, nice. So we really grew nursing because Drexel has cooperative education. Mm -hmm. You know, they're a co-op program. What a model for nursing. Absolutely. Yeah. It was phenomenal. And it still is. Mm -hmm, I yeah. mean, their co-op program is still going strong. But we did a lot of innovative things. We we started one of the earliest accelerated programs in the country, okay. which is second degree 
So, you know, you're, you get tired uh, sitting in front of a computer screen or you, you're really not moving in your, uh, let's say you have a BS in psychology and you're not, uh, you have no place to go. So you're thinking about, you know, what do I do now? Do I get the master's and then the PhD in psychology or maybe nursing, you know, is a faster path for me. And so we started one of the earliest accelerateds. And I guess by the second year, we were admitting 300 a year. Wow. So you not only did you see the need, oh, the, and it, it, but it just launched. Yeah, rapidly. it just, it, it was amazing. And I used to go to um, all of the receptions. We would have a big reception for all the admitted students. So these are all people that had degrees in another field. They wanted to be nurses. They would get a BSN at the end of, ours was 11 months because we were on the quarter system. And they... Um, uh, they would uh, then sit for licensure uh, and, you know, launch their career. Mm -hmm. And I would go and talk to the group, uh, just kind of mill around and say, you know, how come nursing? Why, do, you know, why are you doing this? And many of them were tech people mm -hmm. who I guess at one point got tired just doing the tech stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, they wanted to be with people. Mm. Many of them had had uh, illness episodes in their families. Sure. And so they saw what nurses did mm. and they really got interested. Uh, some of them were, um, I would say, looking for uh, a different kind of connection in their work. Yeah, They wanted to work with people on a deeper level. I remember talking to a man, he was, he looked like he was in his early fifties. And I went over and I said, Oh, I said, cause usually the average age of our accelerateds was late twenties. Yeah. And I said, gee, I said, nursing. And he said, Oh yes. He said, I'm an undertaker and I want to work with the living now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you never hey. know. So, I want to, I, I have to interject now yeah. because you said some amazing things that we've talked about with countless deans and, and professors and individuals and, and stuff that we preach daily. The first thing we use a Venn diagram that has okay. three, three circles. And the first one is social fit. Yes. The second one is academic fit. Yes. And the third one is financial fit. And right. we talk about those three, that's the perfect fit school for you. And we, you know, especially with your background in psychology mm -hmm. and, and this book, I mean, it's called overcoming secondary stress and medical and nursing practices, right. right? Stress has gone through the roof yes. in higher ed. And so mm -hmm. today, if that fit, if that social fit is not there, man, that's a tough pathway it, forward. It, yes, it is. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's so important to visit mm -hmm. the place to attend the open houses. Now, Every, virtually every nursing program, PA program, PT program. And in at Drexel, we had nursing from uh, BSN co-op up to doctorate. Wow. We had uh, a, a fantastic physician assistant program, physical therapy. Now, PA and PT are postgraduate. Yeah. So you have to have a, a baccalaureate degree mm -hmm. with all the science prerequisites. 
but we even had the degree program that got you into mm -hmm. physical therapy yeah. or PA. We had uh, one area that people don't know much about are the creative arts therapies. Mm -hmm. We had music therapy, art therapy, and dance movement therapy. And they were master's level programs, and they usually attracted students who maybe had a background in psychology. But some of them were already health providers like nurses, and they would uh, go for this master's in this very specific area of therapy. Of course, now the the market for mental health mm -hmm. providers huge, is, yeah. is enormous. So we had that, we had nutrition, and then we eventually got food sciences. Uh, we had 12 accrediting bodies that visited our school. Mm. So we were always in some process of writing. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of, it, it kind of became, uh, it, it was, it kind of became easy to do because we were so used to it. Yeah. <laughs> and I paid a lot of attention to finances. So if we were, uh, if we were making a, you know, a, a generous bottom line, I would ask for more yeah. resources in order to support students and to support faculty. Well, mm -hmm. and, and it sounds like the support of innovation and the yes. new programs yeah. and expanding the reach. There's another thing that you mentioned that uh, I think any good person in life has and that's mentors mm -hmm. yes and your your first one right you were that's talking right. about was you're you're at school and you are you're you went or sorry you went to work in the uh psychiatric ward yes and she was like you need to go get your master's yes she did <laughs> right and that type of encouragement support and direction is yes it's invaluable mm -hmm. you know when miss holmes died i got a call uh I was, uh, I think I was at Villanova at the time. I was on the faculty for a short time at Villanova. And uh, she left, uh, Miss Holmes left something for you in her will. And I thought, really? And uh, it, you could come, her, it was her attorney. Uh, it's just it, an envelope and, you know, give me your address. I'll mail it to you. So this package arrives and there's a little uh, jewelry box and I opened it and it, it was a gold. 18 karat gold bow it looked like it was, you know, wrapped into a bow and it had lapis on the, the uh, tie. And in the back, it was a locket with a picture of the first place I worked, Eastern Pennsylvania Psychiatric yeah. Institute. And there was a note that she had left to, you know, remember her and remember what great care we gave there. We want to help. Send your questions to info at collegeknowledge.net. These can be about college, finances, careers, and anything else you have questions on. So, so I want to, the, the whole mentoring thing at, at Drexel and in your career, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of times we hear, uh, you know, the mentor guided me and helped me. And then that in turn inspires the individual to be the mentor to others. Yes, right. Yes. And so this, this concept of lift while you climb that there was uh, Dr. Kenyon Bonner from the university of Pittsburgh, Dean of students at the university of Pittsburgh mm -hmm. introduced us to that subject, but almost two and a half uh, years yeah, ago yeah, now, ago. but how much and, and Drexel being the co-op style institution, mm -hmm. you have to make choices of career paths and things you're going to do. And, and, yes. and so 
mentoring has to be a huge part of that. Right. Well, you know, at Drexel, it, it, uh, from my perspective, you sort of got double mentoring because you were mentored in your program, mm -hmm. you know, and, and all of us have professors that we gravitate sure. yep. towards. So you have that level of mentorship, but then you have co-op. And, uh, you know, I remember when Victoria Rich was the chief nursing officer of the University of Pennsylvania system. We were friends. She would call me and she would say, Gloria, I need two dozen co-op students to apply for these positions that were crafted. We love the Drexel co-op students. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, Victoria, they're not eggs. <laughs> <laughs> they're people. And so, uh, but, you know, send me your stuff. And well, Gloria, I'd love to recruit them. And so I would develop relationships with the chief nursing officers who would come and interact with the students mm -hmm. And that, that was kind of a double mentoring yeah. that went on that was very powerful. And we, uh, Penn and a Chop, were two of our biggest supporters for co-op. And uh, they hired a lot of our graduates uh, because they, you know, when you really think about it, what does a, a hospital or an institution, what does it cost them to orient a new employee? Mm -hmm. Yeah, A lot. Yep. But not co-op. No. So it was a win-win all yeah. around. Which is is one of the remarkable things about Drexel. And we actually interviewed uh, Ian Sladen, who is the director oh, of the sure, co-op program. Me. Yeah. And he gave us the full background on the co-op and all that, which is, it's, I mean, Drexel was the pioneer yes. in that entire environment. Right. And I think the cool part that, you know, the way it, it and again started as a heavy engineering component and but the way it just works in all the different yes. facets and it becomes feeder programs and it's great launch points mm -hmm. i think we finished that interview with uh ian sladen and, and uh he said <laughs> we both looked at each other and said oh, that's the kind of program our kids need to go to because yeah. it, it just is it, it it makes you not only does it give you the education but it gives you knowledge of how to work and exactly. you don't come into the workforce thinking no. you know you've been buried in no, textbooks you have to for, apply yeah, for the co-op yeah. position you have to compete network you've got to yes. interview you've got to do exactly. all that stuff right so it's yeah. real life right so uh, co-op and you know when uh, i was really surprised when i we landed at at drexel by virtue of a you know chapter 11 and then began looking at co-op and how perfect it was for health professions, mm -hmm. for nursing. Um, I started researching the country. I could only find one other co-op program back mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. Boston. Yeah. Northeastern. Yeah. yeah. And they helped us. We also interviewed Manny Contaminolis, yeah. who's the director of that program. So Northeastern was sort of our, our mentor yeah. as we developed the co-op program at Drexel. And, and both are Absolute excellent uh, programs. That's right. Yeah. So we had a little conversation in the beginning off camera and off, off mm -hmm. microphone. And you gave me insight that never <laughs> even thought about. And okay. I want you to share it because I think it is something that's so powerful that is so overlooked. And I think it's part of the reason 
higher ed has a bad rap right now. Mm-hmm. And that was, you were, you were suggesting that if you're going to go to a school, first thing you do is click on faculty and start looking at, yes, at the faculty. Yes, look at their background. Yeah, go ahead. It, it, share that insight. Well, and I, and I always tell people that, you know, I get a lot of calls now from friends, from, you know, relatives, you know, Gloria, where should, uh, what kind of nursing program or what kind of program, uh, you know, PA, PT. And I say, okay, uh, you know, first of all, you have to, you know, your, your three circle, your mm-hmm. Venn diagram there, you got to think about how much you're going to spend, uh, which is interesting. My father, I found my father's tuition receipts when he died. Mm-hmm. He was 104. Wow. Uh, he, uh, and we were going through his papers. My four years at Villanova, because I added all the receipts up, yeah. cost $3,850. <laughs> that doesn't even pay for a meal plan for a semester right now. Right, yeah. right. So, you know, you're looking at all that, but, but I say you have to look at the quality of the program. How, what's their state board pass rate? Mm-hmm. Uh, the quality of the faculty. And how do you determine the quality of the faculty? Well, you go and look at their credentials. How many of them have DNPs, which are clinical doctorates? How many have PhDs? A lot of nursing faculty have EDDs. You know, have they really pursued that higher education mm-hmm. so they could be the best teacher? the best researcher, yeah. you know, whatever their bio says. But then how many of them are from diverse schools? You know, from are there some who are graduates of, you know, the elite, the elite schools, the, the you know, the big 10 schools, or are if the the number of the percentage of faculty uh is over 50% from the home school, it's not a good sign. Mm. And so you really need to think about what is going on there. Is it that they can't get people from the outside, which usually is a related to salary, mm-hmm. working conditions, teaching load, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So what you really need to do is look carefully at the list of faculty uh, look at their credentials and look at, at where they went to school. So you could make, uh, you know, at least some determination of what it will be like for uh, the student who's entering there. Yeah. And, and I want to reiterate that because that was a astounding thought that, that when you said it to me, I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. So how much inbreeding is happening and mm-hmm. how much of the same teaching without outside opinion, without, you know, we have a problem in this country right now about uh, just having conversations and yes. being, being able to have civil discourse right. on uh, disagreements. Right. Mm-hmm. And how much of that happens because there are no dissenting opinions. There are no outside influences and you're sort of getting fed the same mm-hmm. thing over and over again. And it's a trickle down of the same subject right. matter. So, and you know, there are schools like that. I mean, I was a consultant to a school. It was a faith-based school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went down, met with the president, met with the head of the nursing program. They were trying to recruit. They were doing a curriculum revision. But they had very strict rules about who could be promoted, mm-hmm. who could be hired, and you had to be a member of their particular sect mm. in order to get tenure. 
So now that that's okay if you're part of that uh if you're part of that religious sect and you have that deep fit then that might be the place for you mm-hmm. but if you're not then you need to think about sure. whether or not that that environment's going to be a good fit for you so yeah looking at the diversity of faculty is extremely important you mm-hmm. know where they come from uh and you know d- talking about diversity how diverse ethnically racially is the faculty mm-hmm. and that's an issue for students who are diverse students because inclusion is such a big part of uh working uh, uh developing a school and developing uh, a sustaining culture and encouraging culture for students so yeah. all of those factors As, you, especially in a subject like nursing where it's very cooperative environment yes. right you're you right. get into a if you get into a hospital you're not no. the only one there you're working with five exactly. six ten people in some instances on yeah. the same subject it's funny you say that because i always uh i remember this conversation with my younger brother and it was about diversity and i said the strongest type of diversity is the diversity of mind yes of thought. right when you have different backgrounds of being able to educate right is not everybody i think that is that is a key golden takeaway from our conversation I, I, today it hit me like a brick on the head when you, you said know, it before the conversation and because yeah. you do hear about colleges right now that i mean look harvard right and there there's a lot of negative well, things happening there. right legacy but it's, system. it's but it's yeah. oh well this person went to harvard Oh, and this went to Harvard, went mm-hmm. to Harvard, went, well, wait a minute. Is this a problem that started years ago and it's just, it never been resolved where right. if they brought in people from the outside, it might've been something that was fixed. Right. It's just, and it very, it just, my mind is running right now. And, and now it's about, you know, I know my oldest is 10 years old, fifth mm-hmm. grade. This is going to be something that I'm going to be spreadsheeting yeah, and yeah. saying, okay, like how diverse is, where do the, the professors come from? Where, you know, what is their exactly. education? Right? That is an amazing piece of information for yes. parents. And Joe, you think about our interviews, mm-hmm. the, the ones that have been just like unbelievable where we go, we walk away enlightened from the interview. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, they didn't, they're, they're at a high rank at a school mm-hmm. that they never attended. Right. They, they had nothing to do with that school until they became faculty. They're all, and, and almost every single one of yeah. them that had that power in our interview right. was working at an institution they never attended. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. We can go yeah. back and look at that. No, yeah. right. Write that one down. So there was another thing you mentioned that, uh, you know, and I brought the Venn diagram out, social fit, financial fit, and academic fit, right? Those, right. those three. But you talked about mission and value yes. being lived at LaSalle specifically. Yes. And, and I think that's something that is is overlooked incredibly. And and it may not be something that's easy to discover mm-hmm. prior to going. But and and you sort of then took that into the culture. And so the mission and value of education that should be the mission and value of every institution. Um, but it's not always right. No, no. There's a there's a financial bottom line, right? That you learned early in life in the in in your profession. How important is the cultural, the mission, the value, the fit for the individual, and the, and then for the institution to vocalize that? And and do you see it often? Well, you know, I I've uh, I think it was the strongest uh, in all of the institutions I've worked at at LaSalle. 
uh, and it was sort of in their DNA. Mm. I, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was the chair of the Department of Nursing, and um, I used to teach. I had a small teaching load. I was the chair. I was developing things. But I used to teach in the evening. We had an evening program. And so uh, my classes were always in Olney Hall. And I, you know, I had about 30 nurses in a class and I'd show up. And LaSalle had a system where uh, as faculty, and this is how they supported teachers. So you were going to give a class in Olney Hall. Let's say I needed an overhead projector or, a, you know, a, a film projector or something I was going to use in class. They had an, uh, an office in the center of the building. You put your order in. You went to the office on your way to class. They had everything on a cart. It was no must fuss. You didn't have to do any of that. It was supporting the teacher. Mm -hmm. So I go to class one night, but we had gotten some new equipment, and I took all of the students over to the lab. And we ended class over in another building. The next morning, I got a phone call from the provost. Gloria, I was walking around Omni Hall last night, and I noticed your classroom was empty. Where were you? Hmm. Oh, I said, brother, I took the students over to the lab uh, because we got some new equipment and we finished class there. Oh, thank you, Gloria. So I went to see my friend, the dean, and I said, gee, I got this phone call. Oh, he said, Gloria, he checks to see. The faculty show up every night. Wow. He walks the hall and he looks in classrooms. And if you're not there, you'll get a call. <laughs> that to me, I, I never forgot that because what it meant was the university administration was focused on academics. Yeah. And many university administrations are not. No. They're focused on other things, mm -hmm. you know, building this, that but not on the quality of the academics and not on our teachers showing up, mm -hmm. yeah. our students getting their money's worth, yeah. their tuition dollars worth. Sure. So uh, uh, LaSalle, the match between their mission and their values. And, you know, I read the life of St. John Baptist de LaSalle because I was so interested and where all this came from. Mm -hmm. And he had he was a priest and he saw a great need in France for the children of the poor to be educated. Mm -hmm. And so he started these schools and he educated this group of men he called brothers. But he said they can't be ordained because we don't want them distracted mm. with, you know, giving the sacraments mm -hmm. and taking care of the their their mission is to teach. Got it. And they followed that mission, and it was really, in, in terms of mission match mm -hmm. with values and outcomes, it was incredible. And it sounded, I mean, the story you told where that phone call came and it was a question about would you do it all over again? Yeah. Your answer basically showed your values and that was something they wanted it sounds like you know yes. if your answer would have been different you might not have gotten that job but so right. that's something yeah. that you know they were i think that's a, a very valuable you know i kind of go back to your story and there's so many things that you said but the you know the passion that you had your parents not necessarily thinking it was the right, right. thing the, the two-hour drive 
two hours right. up, two hours, two hours two, two back. back. If I'll tell you, there's something that you know you're doing what you love. Yes. Because you didn't, you loved every minute of it, you said. Right. And I, I did. Like, oh, how, how would kids feel that way? If it was a two hour commute to and from, would you, if you're loving it, you know you found a fit. Mm-hmm. The mentoring, but then also the networking aspect of your career and your story about right. how many yeah, people reached out was to you. Everything you know, over. It, yeah. It's just one thing. And that amazing, but. That value question stuck out to me. I'm like, one question right. potentially said, you have the value we're looking for right. at and, this institution. And I think, you know, when I when I look back at living through the chapter 11, there was, t- I mean, they had a mission statement. They had, you know, the whole objectives and all to teach, to learn, to care. That was the mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to teach, to learn, to heal the sick. That came right from Sharif. Mm. Uh, who uh, he's now deceased, uh, uh, the uh, uh, CEO of Allegheny Health System. I mean, everything was glitzy and glossy, but surface deep. It was all surface. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, really in the DNA. Well, there's another. There's another thing you brought up, and I think this is something I'd like to ask you. Maybe outside of your teaching but your professional credentials certainly serves this one you talked about adversity in a multiple i mean mm-hmm. you, you had adversity from getting fired you had adversity from the chapter 11 you had you just a, a constant yeah. right yeah and mental health and adversity I, I think there's a connection there some people rise to the challenge some people get suffocated by the challenge mm-hmm. right and so you know the message that we try and deliver is like, you got to pull yourself back up. Like it it, it ain't over till it's over. Right. Right. You can use whatever cliche you want, but you dealt with real adversity. Yes, I did. Moved up. I mean, you you started with doctors trying to push you guys around, tell you what what it was, right. Right. (laughs) Standing your ground there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You talked about getting fired and standing on a picket line, uh, having chapter 11 bankruptcy, right. All of these different components just, and you just rose and got stronger and dug Mm -hmm. your heels in and we're missing some of that today. Why? And what's the advice for people to, to... Well, I think, you know, because I work, because I gravitated to the behavioral health uh, disciplines mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. nursing and psychology and all, uh, you know, when you work in behavioral health, when you're a nurse, psychiatric nurses, psychologists, you have to practice what you preach. So when I would hit one of these walls, I, I always say that my career has been like a luxury cruise with turbulence now and then and three rogue waves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with a bankruptcy, getting fired, uh, I mean, dealing with accrediting bodies and always came through. Uh, okay, but it's, it's tough. So when you're a psychologist or a psychiatric nurse, Oh, you got to practice what you preach. You have to go for help. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did all along. I mean, I've been through didactic group therapy. I even am a certified hypnotist. Mm. Uh, so I could put myself in a trance in a boring meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably and nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I spent 10 years on the couch every week, 10 years with this wonderful psychoanalyst. And I probably would still have been there had he not moved out of the area. Mm. So you have to look at yourself 
and say, all right, how am I dealing with this? You know, could I have done anything differently? How, how am I managing dealing with a difficult administrator, difficult, uh, uh, physician earlier in my career? Uh, uh, early in my career, I went all over the country, which is really the beauty of these health professions. They're so broad. Mm-hmm. You could take so many paths. So I worked in a psychiatric hospital, which is like working in an acute care hospital. And then I taught and I had a business. I, I had a business conducting assertiveness training sessions, and I did it all over the country. Mm. So a, a hospital system would call me in for two days. I would give workshops to the st- uh, nurses you know, how to speak up without being obnoxious. I mean, this this kind of need, uh, this need for this kind of, uh, I would call it self-care management, mm-hmm. is it's profound right now because of all the, the stuff you read about toxic work environment, mm-hmm, yeah. bullying, mm-hmm. uh, you know, violence in the institution. So, I did that for, I guess, 15 years. Mm. Uh, I worked for 3M, the company that supplies ORs. And they had a service for their customers where they had a team. They assembled a team, and I was on that team. And we would do like three cities in three days. And I would be the after-lunch assertiveness training I'd give them a session, and in the morning, they would do equipment reviews and this and that. So, uh, I mean, I, you could do almost anything mm. if you go into nursing. You're not, or, or a health profession yeah. like a PA, even a PT. I mean, look at the breadth of PT. Uh, you can work with people with injuries, or you can do sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, sports medicine, sports PT. The health professions provide you with such a breadth of choices, a wide range of choices that, you know, if you're getting restless in your career, uh, you start looking to do something different, you know, go down a little different path and try something new. But, you know, the the point about self-care, you have to take care of yourself. You have to take care of your own mental health. You're going to run into a lot of people who uh, are anxious, who are aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I even give nurses and physicians workshops on humor, mm-hmm. using humor to manage stress. And I, I will tell you a story. One night <clears throat> I was the director of the school down at St. Agnes, and I had, uh, we used to have student nurses in the ER. Mm. like uh, once a week in the evening. Mm-hmm. And I had made friends with this ER resident. He was a fellow. I think he was from Hahnemann at the time. And I would go down and find him, and I'd say, so what's going on? What are they learning tonight? Mm-hmm. And one night I went down, and oh, my God, the place was buzzing. The, the police cars were outside, and the red lights were going around. And and I went over to the uh, resident the the fellow and i said what's going on he said we uh he said a a big black limousine pulled up in front of the er doors 
the back door opened and someone pushed a big garbage bag out and we and pulled away and we went out and there was a body in the bag. Uh, and I said, Oh my God. I said, uh, was, was he was shot? And he said, well, we're trying to determine cause of death. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, he, he said, we're trying to rule out suicide. I said, <laughs> suicide. And he said, yes. He said, we're just trying to figure out how he got the twisty on the back. (laughs) (laughs) And we both looked at each other and laughed. Now, what was going on there? Gallows humor. This guy was under so much stress. Mm -hmm. The whole staff was. The police had, you know, worked all over. They didn't know if the limo was going to come back. There was fear. There was all. And he was using humor Mm -hmm. to manage his stress. And so I use that as an example when, I mean, you know, you don't go around saying that publicly. But to a good friend, you can use that kind of humor. So using humor i mean taking care of yourself is crucially important and really something that should be thought about at the beginning of the career mm-hmm. yeah you know how am i going to manage all this yeah well and i think it's, it's a couple of things that i th- i think are are awesome you practice what you preached right so mm-hmm. using the tools that you learned yourself you were using them to help you i think there's another thing that that maybe it was in between the lines, but I heard it loud and clear, which is you have to, as an individual, figure out how to help yourself. And so it's, yes. it's not, it's not that you can't have others help you. It's that you have to know if that is your pathway, if that is how your help work, uh, how you get better. Right. Mm-hmm. And so part of that is discovering what, what satisfies you, what helps you get through tough times and being able to go there instead of, uh, you know, go internally and sort of melt, melt. You know, I'm so glad you said that because right now, uh, you know, no, I also edit a journal. Okay. I've edited this, edited this journal for 45 years. It's called holistic nursing practice. And I get, we get tons of articles about, programs that institutions are putting in place to help their staff manage the stress of the work. And um, I, I'm also a follower of Adam Grant, you know, uh, the guy, uh, guy Wharton, and he's got a a website called Granted. And he writes a a lot about the psychology of work and all of that. And uh, he recently had uh, a, posting in on his website on um toxic positivity mm. where the you know the the environment you're working in is telling you you have to be positive all the time mm-hmm. you know and and then they bring these programs in that are quote mandatory mandatory positivity <laughs> i mean really uh so it's it's right. You have to find your own way. Nobody can really mandate the way you're going to take care of yourself as a health professional, even as a student. You know, you're a student in college and 
maybe there's a program that everybody has to go to in order to uh, manage their stress. Maybe there's mandatory mindfulness. Well, that's not going to work for everybody. You know, maybe a third of the folks in that mindfulness class would do much better running around the track. Yeah. Because that's a form of meditation, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of physical uh, physical exercise. So you have to find your own way and then pursue it because it's your responsibility to take care of yourself. Absolutely. Awesome stuff. Um, <coughs> last question I'll ask, and, and we got to shut it down because I could talk to you for hours without question. <laughs> um, best advice you can give students, particularly in pursuing higher ed doesn't have to be profound, but what, what's your sort of thought on, Hey, you're, you're headed off to college. What's the advice you would give people? Okay. So I would tell them this, when you're looking for a college or a program or a career, pretend that you're writing the final paper you're going to submit in your high school program. And this paper is crucial to your finishing up getting out, getting a good grade and getting in. And you know that for that paper and in order to earn that grade, you have to do exquisite research. Mm -hmm. And that's what I would tell students. Mm -hmm. Do your homework about where you want to go, how you want to feel, how you want to fit in. Know yourself And of course, talk with your parents or whoever's going to support you about the finances of all of this. So get the big picture Mm -hmm. and then begin exploring and never, ever be afraid to ask questions. Never. If you you hold back and you don't ask those crucial questions, then you're, you're not going to know what you're getting into. But more importantly, if you don't get answers or if you get brushed off, mm-hmm. you know it's not the place yep. for you. That <laughs> scene. Yep, I mean, it. that is a mic drop. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Gloria Donnelly. Incredible interview. Thank you. Awesome insight. This has been College Knowledge. I hope you guys liked it. Please subscribe, share, uh, and pass on to your friends. We can send your student to the school of their dreams and send you to your dream retirement. Visit us at EliteCollegiatePlanning.com to get started. Thanks for listening to the College Knowledge Podcast with your hosts, Dave Kozak and Joe Kearns. We hope you enjoyed this week's exploration of higher education, sponsored by the College Planning Network and Paradigm Financial Group. That's all for this episode. See you next time.